sitting, I like to look a little at why are we sitting here, uh, enduring this, or enjoying this, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe by the second day things are lifting up a little, I don't know. And so what I like to look a little is in a way what, he, what are our aims, our goal, you know, what are we doing this for, what is this meditation about. And so basically, I like to talk about awakening. And just, you know, look at it in different ways. But first, in a way to reflect that when we sit, it seems to me that when we come on a meditation retreat, when we do meditation, either on a retreat or at home, we're doing this not in a way, I know often on the spiritual path, you talk of goalless goal, that there is no goal, I just sit there. Personally, I would suggest that actually we don't just sit there because it's better than doing golf or basketball or shopping. I think we're sitting here because we have definite goals. And I personally think it's fine to have goals. <laughs> and I would say in a way, when we sit here, it seems to me that we have two types of aims, of goals, what I would call the short-term goal and the long-term aspiration. And in the short term, I think very much this is about progress. This is about us, in a way, doing the meditation because we think it's going to help us, because we hope it's going to help us to lead a better life, help us to, in a way, be more peaceful, be more steady, be more compassionate, be more... In a way, I think often it, it has a lot to do to do the meditation to cause less suffering to ourselves and to others. And what is interesting uh, about that is that actually generally when we do the meditation, we can see, it seems to me, or that was my experience, we can see some progress. We can see that there are some changes. We can see that, you know, we become a little more, it seems to me, confident, grounded, also more open. We also start to kind of inquire into, you know, where does the suffering come from? How does it arise? How can I deal with it in a more creative way? But I think this is not, in a way, the only thing, the only reason why we practice. It seems to me that, in a way, there is a short-term goal, a short-term aspiration that we can all more or less experience. But also, we need to have this long-term goal, which, in terms of the Buddhist path, would be this aspiration to awakening for our own sake, but also for the sake of all beings. So in a way that this second goal is more about this kind of, this aspiration, which I think is very important to give us energy. Because I think when you sit here and it's, uh, you know, eight sitting of the day and it's kind of a little painful, why am I doing this? And I think, you know, if you think, well, does it really make a difference? But if you have this aspiration, well, you know, I could kind of for awakening, awakening for the sake of others, I think it kind of gives you a little lift, a little kind of energy. Because in a way it is about being present. But I think it's about being present not in a closed manner, but being present in a very open and creative way. So that's what I like to look about, this awakening. What is it? Because for me, 
It's very much about, in a way, this aspiration to really manifest the potential we have for wisdom and for compassion. But what is interesting in terms of awakening, and I think this is one of the reasons we see it in meditation, even if you say, I know most people say, well, awakening is not for me. You know, I remember in Korea, I mean, in the Zen school in Korea, everybody go for awakening. You know, you must be awakened. And Master Kuzan will tell us, in the morning you must make the vow to be awakened by the evening. In the evening, if it does not happen, you make the vow to be awakened the next morning. So this is something you talk a lot about there. And when I was there, everybody was very excited trying to get this awakening. And I personally felt, well, you know, well, you know, if it happens to me, I don't mind. But, you know, I rather... <laughs> I rather develop, you know, wisdom and compassion. But I think actually the two are very together. I think we have to, what we have to be a little careful about is sometimes we bring what I would call these images, this expectation of enlightenment. That's why I prefer the term awakening, which I think is kind of more, you kind of open, awaken to something. When I think often the word enlightenment Often I have the, uh, the feeling that people sit in meditation and they hope that one day the switch will kind of really work and then being will suddenly all lit up like a Christmas tree and then start to lift, you know, and then everybody can start to bow to us, you know, and buy us Rolls Royce or whatever. But this is another story. But in a way, this idea of we have to look at it like that, you know, at this kind of idea at the back of the mind. Because I think often we are sitting in meditation waiting for something like that to happen. You know, I kind of, you know, some of you sit there and like, oh, is it, is it, you know, is it going to happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, missed it, missed it. We're so close. But it's interesting, we can waiting. And I think, you know, sometimes this waiting can be a little kind of a, of a an obstacle because it's kind of like this expectation for something we want to be or we hope to be or kind of a certain kind of achievement of something and often I think behind that outside of this amazing feeling one is supposed to have I think there is this idea that once I got it then I'll be sorted out I won't have any problem anymore, I will know everything, you know, then I can relax. I don't have to do all this meditation ever again. And what was very inspiring for me, in a way, for my teacher, Master Cousin, who was reputed to have had three awakenings, is that to the last day of his life, he meditated. He would meditate everywhere, in the train, in the bus, in the boat, I traveled with him, he would meditate all the time, even though he had had many awakenings. So I think this, in a way, leads me to look a little. What is it, this awakening? Is it a magic wand? Whoop, and then whoop, we have this kind of fairy tale story, and we live in that fairy tale story, or is it something else? And actually, uh, one of the reasons I feel it, it's a very it's good to do the little ceremony we do, though very short, in the morning and in the evening. It's because actually this, the offering, what we do at that moment, 
actually are symbols of awakening. That's why I kind of like to do that, however short. Because each thing we offer <coughs> at that moment, the candle, the incense, the water, all of these are symbols of awakening. So in a way, every time we do the, the, we offer the candle, the, we lead the incense, and we offer the water, actually each time these are reminders, they can be symbol of awakening. And how can they be symbol of awakening? And actually what they do, the candle, actually what it shows is two things. It shows selflessness and also illumination. Because the candle, how does it illuminate? It illuminates by disappearing. So actually, as a candle gives us light, at the same time it's disappearing. And it's a little, in a way, the symbol of what this awakening we're looking for is about, that, you know, a certain very fixed, kind of very separate feeling of ourselves disappear to let actually our light shine. And that's what is interesting about the candle, is that it does two things. The candle, before you lit it, is just poof, this candle. Wax, little wig, not much special, if I may say so, but I mean, it's okay. But when you lit it, two things happen. First is that it is illuminated itself. It illuminates itself. And at the same time, it is illuminating. And I think awakening is the same. That we, in a way, become awakened to ourselves, to our own potential for being wise, for being compassionate, for being clear, for being bright. But in doing that, this is not just for ourselves. That can really also radiate to everybody around us. Not so much that we kind of emit light as such, but I think by the way we are with others. And this is something I could, I kind of noticed with Master Cousin. It was very interesting. I mean, he was very, kind of looked relatively ordinary and actually looked much smaller than me. He was much smaller than me, but actually he looked bigger. Because he had this kind of, this feeling when you were with him that you could not really grasp. He had this kind of spaciousness within it that also could reach your own spaciousness. And I think that's what is about this candle, that it illuminates. That actually, when we, this awakening is not just for ourselves, but in a way for the spaciousness we can create within ourselves, but also in our relationship with others. And then there is the incense, and the incense is the same. The incense produces the fragrance as it disappears. So again, selflessness. As it, but also the other element with the incense is that it's fragrant and that the fragrance reaches out everywhere. When the incense is lit, it doesn't say, well, I don't like those guys over there. I am not going to go that way. Maybe this way I will go. It goes everywhere. It kind of spread everywhere, it touched everything. And I think this is also this idea of awakening, that in a way it opens this compassion within ourselves that will be, in a way, 
equal, equally spread to everybody, that is not discriminative, that is really, you know, open to everything that we encounter. And then the last one is water. We also water. And actually there, you have the reflection that water reflects totally everything that comes in front of it. But actually it doesn't grasp at anything. And I think, you know, to me this is what we're trying to do when we meditate. That we're totally present to ourselves and to everything. Everybody around us. But in a different way. Where we don't grasp, we don't discriminate, we don't negate, we don't reject. But we really just are with what is but in a more creative way, in a more open manner, just like water. We reflect exactly what it is, what is in front of it, and when the thing goes, nothing is left to reflect the next thing. And can we imagine being like this, encountering fully whatever, and then letting it go? Can we, can we be as patient as that? For me also, another thing about the water is it adapt adaptability. You put it in a plate, it will be very shallow. You put it in a deep bowl, it will be deep, it will be round, it will be square. And for me this is an element which is an essential part of the awakening, of the meditation practice, that it makes us more flexible, more creative, more adaptable. Because I think in a way one of the suffering we have is our rigidity. We fix ourselves, we fix others. Anyway, can we imagine being like water, who just flow and adapt and is with everything, kind of flowing? Can we imagine just to aspire to be like that? To me, in a way, it's worth aspiring for, worth meditating for, even if it's a little painful at times. And it seems to me that in a way, we have to be careful of thinking of awakening as this one bang, amazing, far away, somewhere, sometimes things to happen. But actually, the symbol of awakening, the selflessness, the compassion, the adaptability, the non-grasping, we can have moments where we can experience that. We can experience it in the meditation, but also we can experience it in our daily life. So to be careful of not seeing so much as unattainable, but how do I experience that even for a brief moment? And how do I benefit from that? Then another thing that uh, I think often uh, we think about awakening is that we, you know, we're going to get something. That once you awaken and we've really done, you know, lots of meditation or finally being, it happens to us, then one bang we're going to get like you know a big Christmas present. The biggest you can get. We're going to get a big something. And we're going to become this big something. And what is interesting when you look about the way the Buddha presented awakening at the beginning in uh, two thousand five hundred years ago, actually the way he expressed it and described it was actually at four different stages, what you would lose. So that awakening actually is not gaining something, going to get something special, but actually we become awakened by losing something. 
And that's why I think for me, in a way, awakening is not so much an ideal state, but more of a process. A process of dissolution of the ex- obstacle, the limitation to the manifestation of our potential. So now I like to look at what the Buddha described as what we would lose in these four different stages. The first stage, you lose three things. You lose belief in self, you lose doubt, you lose belief in rites and rituals. And this is interesting. Belief in self, and this first moment of awakening that is described might not be very long. It might just be a kind of flicker. But in that first moment, you see something you have never seen before. And for example, with losing the belief in self, is that we start, and I think that meditation helps us to realize that, that we are not so fixed, so solid, so independent, so separate, so isolated. But through the meditation we start to feel we are more a flow of conditions. So that there is a functioning self, but that functioning self is not fixed and solid, but is very fluid. And I think in a way the meditation is about knowing more and more what is it that constitutes this functioning, flowing self. To me, this is one of the discoveries of meditation. Then all the things that go is belief in rites and rituals. And there is to see that the rituals are not an end in themselves, that through certain rituals you will not get salvation. But actually, it is just a function. It's just a, a tool that Generally, people, when they get together, they like to do ritual. Or if you are of a devotional character, then you enjoy this. It can become a practice, a practice using the ritual. For example, with us, the bowing. We do this three little bows in the morning and in the evening. And you could see them in different ways. Not that, you know, as I bow, suddenly, punk awakening is going to happen if I bow long enough. But in a way, the morning we could see we make a pause. First we make a pause, and then we know it bow to our potential. We pay respect to what we're going to engage in for the whole day. So we're trying to see how the ritual too can become practice. And then there is doubt. Doubt at the first stage goes. There is no more doubt. And there, I think, is when we experience for ourselves that actually the meditation works. And for me, this is an important element of meditation, that it is not a hard slog all the time, but that it works. It really makes a difference, not so much on the cushion necessary, though it does over time. It becomes, I would say, much easier. But that the meditation, when we are in our daily life, make a difference to the way we are with ourselves, to the way we are with others. That it creates this spaciousness, this openness, this freshness, this creativity that we can experience ourselves. And this is something I experienced again and again in Songwangsat, in the temple where I was. We would sit for long hours. And it was interesting, this moment when we would sit, when suddenly 
especially in the middle of the retreat, I would feel, this is amazing, this is what I want to do my whole life. When you really kind of, in a way, feel the effect, feel how, what it does to you, to kind of really loosen the grasping, the tightening, the fixing of ourselves. Then there is the next stage. So the first stage is all these things are gone. Then, second stage, it weakens greed and hatred. <coughs> so this is what awakening is. Not about kind of this amazing lighting up of the Christmas tree, but actually it's a weakening of greed and hatred. And I think at that stage is a gross manifestation of it. Greed, what is it? Greed, I want this. I want this for myself. There is this kind of covetousness. covetousness. And if I remember when I was in Korea, I used to, during the free season, I could go to the bank and do my financial operation. And so one day I go to this bank, and in my youth I was an anarchist, so I was a little against capitalism, but I had to use bank. So I go to the bank, spend some money, and I don't show it, but gleefully I see the teller gives me too much money back. And I think, great, once again the capitalism, let's go. <laughs> you know, and then it's more money for me. Great, so I take the money, and I'm halfway out of the bank, and suddenly I think, no, you can't do this. This is when I started to see meditation really worked. <laughs> I thought, no, I can't do this. And why I could not do this was because of compassion. Because that fellow was going to suffer if I went away with the money because of my greed. And so I surprised myself and turned back and gave the money back. And it showed me how greed, generally, it's for me. And that will dissipate, that will, in a way, obscure compassion. Kind of seeing that it is a world I share with others. And also, I think in this weekend, this greed and hatred, there is exaggeration of what is attractive and exaggeration of what is negative. And once I had this happen to me when I was sitting somewhere else, not in some one cyber with nuns. And like you, every day I had a little job to do. And my job was cleaning. At four o'clock, every day I had to clean the bathroom, the communal bathroom. So I would go, four o'clock, communal bathroom, and there was a nun washing. And I was always upset. She's there, she's in the way, what is she doing here? She should not be here. Hatred. No, how can I get rid of her? And I could not get rid of her, she was there every day. No way about it. So, it was interesting because I would sit in meditation. What is this? What is this? What is this? I would not think of the nun. I would not think anything of the bathroom. Then four o'clock, ding, ha, ha, ha. And I would do my work, you know, really resentful. And, uh, and then back, what is this? What is this? <laughs> and this lasted for two weeks. And I did not think of it. I kind of did not trigger that this was maybe, you know, hatred, resentment, aversion. And then one day, I go, four o'clock, and she is there, and I'm there, and it's totally fine. It is as it is. I can be with this. And there is no version, resentment, or no storyline. And 
I did not do anything. But what I saw happen is the grasping went. The grasping and it should not be this way. The exaggeration mm-hmm. of the problem this created. And it was fine. I could do my job and she could do her whooshing and it was okay. And I saw again how meditation were, that in a way the progress is not so obvious. But we can see it in this letting go, in this non-grasping, in this spaciousness around what we encounter. And then, there is a third stage. And in the third stage, greed and hatred are totally dissolved. And to me, this is amazing. Can we imagine a state in which we have no hatred, no greed, no wanting, no rejecting, no liking, I want this, no disliking, I don't want that. I think it would be such a different space to be in. Because generally, we have this movement of mind, heart, and body. We move forward, or we move backward. We come in contact, I want this. So generally, there is contact, and straight away. I mean, notice when you eat lunch. You know, you eat lunch, you see, oh, it looks nice. You put it in, mm, it's nice, oh, I want more. And then notice when you put something, it looks nice, oh, how can I get rid of it, you know? I can't stand this. It's kind of, we have this movement very quickly. I like, I want, I don't like, I push away. And I think, in a way, this dissolving of greed and hatred doesn't mean that there is no contact or no engagement or no liking or disliking. But it is done, there is a different encounter. There is a full engagement, but in a spacious way. And personally, this, I think, is worth aspiring for. And at that level, to also reflect a little about what is it I need, what is it I want. This relinquishing of greed and hatred doesn't mean that you're not careful with things mm. which cause suffering or you don't kind of try to have what is more comfortable. So as a human being, we need to survive biologically. So we need various things for our survival. And to me, this is interesting, the meditation. Sometimes it makes you move from, do I really need this? Or is it really I want it? But actually, I am exaggerating. You know, it's desirability. I think we're looking a little at that through this. Then you might say, but then what is left? What is left? You know, I mean, already look gone. And actually, to me, what is left is very interesting. What is left is conceit, restlessness, and ignorance. And that's why I think it's interesting conceit. What is conceit? Conceit is... I am this, I am that. It's kind of identification with conditions. And I think this is in a way the last kind of obstacle. And when you hear somebody say, I am enlightened, then I wonder in this conceit. You know, because in thoughtness is very alternative. You get a guru appearing on the high street every three months. You know, I am enlightened. And everybody following that person is kind of a bit strange. But, you know, to be careful of that, kind of, also the belief in self has gone. There's still this conceit, there's still this identification with condition. And at that level, Huilin said about awakening, enlightenment, he who is puffed up by the slightest impression 
I am now enlightened is no better than he was when under delusion. So you need to be careful of that. Oh, I have arrived. I have got it. I have got that. When I think it's more of a process, what is it that goes? This kind of identification as being something in a certain way. Restlessness is this kind of unsettled excitement that might still be there. And then ignorance. In a way, it's kind of ignorance goes because finally we know fully the three characteristics of impermanence, of unreliability, of conditionality. And this to me is a training again and again to kind of, through realizing those, through that experience of really knowing change, that making a difference to our ever, everyday life. And I think to me this is what is important. That actually is not just an experience, because I think in meditation we can have mystical meditative experience. But how does this then is transferred into our daily life? How does it make a difference to our relationship? And I think it's only when we, the ignorance, when we really know impermanence, we really know unreliability, conditionality, I think then it really makes a big difference to the way we are in the world. So this is in a way, this is the master plan. All these things, slowly going at different stage, in different way. And personally I think, you know, this is what I aspire to, this is what I want to work on. And of course this is a big program, this is lots to do. But I think it's interesting, when you sit in meditation, you might have lots of thought and you are tired. I think if you see, ah, this is what I'm doing, working on all these things, this is a lifetime work, all these different things to work on. And actually, to me, it gives a kind of a certain energy, a certain inspiration to really do it, really do it in, in this moment. Our master was really, Master Kuzan really was there, he said, this is urgent to be enlightened, it's urgent, do it now. <laughs> you often kind of really say, you know, the time is running out, you really must practice, you know, when you have the time. And I know an old nun I really respect, she used to say that to me too. You are young. In those days I was uh, 25, 30. You are young, full of energy. Don't sleep on your cushion. Really ask, what is this? What is this? You know, you too, you can be awakened. So in a way, I think this gives energy, in a way, to our practice. Then I like to look a little at this idea, this evolution of the development of idea of Buddhahood, of awakening, because this has really changed. This has been a quite a development in Buddhism. Because at the beginning, when the Buddha appeared 2,500 years ago, there was this idea that there was one Buddha per eon, and that in a way the Buddha is a human being which over a lifetime perfect himself, and then Bingo in the last lifetime become the fully enlightened Buddha. Personally, the only problem I have with this schema is that last lifetime, when he becomes the Buddha, he can only do so in a male body. So lady, this time around, forget it, you know. <laughs> and I have a little problem with this kind of gendered awakening myself. But that's the traditional view. Then this moved 
this move to actually that in one lifetime one could become a Buddha and then it was not so gendered so of course the male generally had better chances but still the lady could come here and here and in a way then the Buddhahood was seen as a seed that within ourselves there was a seed of Buddhahood and so if we watered it and if we put manure and we take care of it then if we really worked hard then in one lifetime we could become awakened and then there was a third movement and this was that actually we are Buddha already we already awakened we don't know it but we are because in a way this is very much in line this idea that all of us have the Buddha nature that all of us equally have the Buddha nature so in a way equally we can be awakened at any moment and that's why there is this famous uh, passage all Buddhas are sentient beings and all sentient beings are Buddhas so that in a way anybody at any time can be awakened can be a Buddha and then comes this question I mean which Dogen phrased so much this is a Soto Zen master of the 12th century in Japan very important master and that was his problem he had with the practice since we're supposed to be enlightened already, since we're supposed to have this Buddha nature, then why do we have to practice so hard to get it? I mean, it's there. Why can't we suddenly be with it? And in a way, what you realize over time, in a way, is that yes, we will have this Buddha nature, but in a way, this Buddha nature isn't changed. It's always there, ready to be manifested. But actually, it is clouded. It is covered. And in a way, one analogy that is often used is that it is like the sun. Like we had a very mixed weather recently. Sometimes it's very sunny and the sun is bright in the blue sky. And it's so obvious. Yes, this is the sun. But then those other days, suddenly it was kind of really raining and there was a storm. And then you don't see the sun whatsoever. But the sun is not wetted. It's not buffeted by the storm. But we are. And we don't see the sun the sun is still there that's what very much is this idea of the Buddha nature it's always there but you know it is covered it is obscured and that's why that level when I was in Korea some uh, more recently I met this son and I asked her what is your practice and she told me our practice is to be a Buddha I thought this is a neat idea <laughs> you know and so in the morning she would get up, she would meditate, and then she is a professor at a university. She would, during the whole day, try to be a Buddha, try to manifest the compassion and the wisdom of the Buddha. And then at the end of the day she would check, was I Buddha-like or was I sentient being-like? And then the next morning she would set out again to be a Buddha. But in this is in a way a fantastic idea to try to be that. Instead of thinking, well, Buddha Hood is so far away, I'll never get there. How can we be a Buddha now in this moment? And so I'd like to read this quote of uh, Master Huine, the Zen Patriarch. For ordinary men or women is Buddha, and defilements are awakening. A foolish passing thought makes one an ordinary person. 
when an enlightened second thought makes one a Buddha, a passing thought that clings to sense object is delusion. When a second thought that frees one from attachment is awakening. So in a way, here you can see, in a way we have a little of a choice to be a Buddha or not. Because if we have a foolish passing thought and we grasp at it, we identify with it, we reduce ourselves to it, then we become an ordinary person. But if we have a second, enlightened, wise, compassionate thought, at that moment, we are a Buddha. If we cling to what we come in contact with, if we cling to a sensation, we cling to a thought, we cling to a sound, we cling to a feeling, then again we are ordinary. But if we let go, if we are free from attachment, then we are awakened. So in a way, you can even possibly see that in your own city, when you know you have a thought and you get immersed in it, you get limited to it. Or are you just sitting and being totally open, spacious with everything there is around you? And in a way, you kind of suddenly have a glimpse of being very spacious, and then poof, you close again. I think kind of in a way, seeing that for yourself, experiencing that for yourself. And to finish, just to kind of also point out certain ideas we have awake about awakening, which I think we have to look at a little, especially in terms of our relationship to teachers and also to awakening. Because I think one of the ideas we have is that if we become awakened or enlightened, then we're going to transcend all conditions. Often there is this message of transcendence. That finally when I get it, awakening, enlightenment, then I'll be beyond any condition. Which then implies that if I have a great master and he or she too is beyond conditions. And I think one has to be very careful there. Because this is one thing, from my small understanding, it seems that however enlightened the teacher I met, they've not been beyond conditions. They've not been beyond cultural conditions, and they've not been beyond experiential conditions. And I find it very interesting when generally most teachers, so far I have not met one, who said, oh, your way is the best, and my way is not too bad. Generally they say, my way is the best, my way is the only way, everybody must do this. I mean, my teacher was like that. You know, yeah, he, there is this famous encounter where he is invited to give a talk at a Vipassana center where they do a three-month retreat. And he sit there looking very master-like and say, you're watching the breath, you're just dead corpses. <laughs> this is totally useless. <laughs> the only thing to do is ask, what is this? So of course he was never re-invited. <laughs> but because, in a way, that's all he experienced. That's all he knew. So of course for him it was the best way. But personally I would not say it is the only way. Because it's not for everybody. The same as the breath is a good way, but it's not the only way. So I think we have to be careful when the teacher comes saying, this is the best, this is the thing you have to do. I would say try it out. But to me it seems that generally they are, in a way, kind of, you know, conditioned by their experience. Often we had master, kind of master or 
monks coming from other culture, uh, either from Sri Lanka or from Japan or for whatever, and they would try. I mean, Japan was a bit closer, but like from Sri Lanka or Thailand. I mean, when they talk with Master Kunan, you had the feeling, you know, as a translator, that you had two different dictionaries talking to it in different languages, and that it was kind of like, kind of they were not meeting. Kind of again, again, I had this with my teacher, kind of things like that happening. Well, they're not kind of the culture is very different. I mean, the most famous one you might have heard about this wonderful story about the orange. You have a Tibetan master, very elevated one, and a Korean Zen master, and their disciples in Buddha I mean, that's one of the things of Western people love to have great masters meeting each other. I mean, it's improving nowadays. They're kind of learning the tricks for the Westerners. But in those days, they did not know that yet. So, you know, they meet and, you know, they get them together. And then, of course, the Korean master takes the orange and show it to the Tibetan master and said, What is it? <laughs> and the Tibetan master turned to his uh, interpreter and said, Don't they have oranges in Korea? <laughs> And then another often idea we have is this idea of perfection. Is this idea of perfection of omniscience, which I think comes from tradition, definitely from tradition, this idea of the Buddha being the all enlightened one who perfected himself for many lifetimes as a bodhisattva. And of course, from that, there is this idea that at the end, there is this all great enlightenment. That then the person is totally perfect, is totally omniscient. But it is relatively obvious, as the Dalai Lama admits, that the Buddha was not a geographer, and that the, the view he presented of the world was a view of his time, with Mount Sumeru in the middle and then the earth totally flat. And to this day you'll have very traditional monks and nuns saying, you know, when you show them the kind of the picture of the earth in space, they say, no, 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 it's flat. The Buddha said so. <laughs> you know, and, and, and so we have to be careful there that in a way, to me, what is described, it seems to me, of awakening is not that suddenly we become this perfect person who then know everything. I think mean, this is a very dangerous concept because then we know, in a way, aspiring for something which is impossible. I think the great masters, the great mistresses are not perfect beings, are not omniscient, but they are very spacious beings, they are very compassionate beings. And when I, w when I was with Master Cousin, this is what I found always was wonderful, how adaptable he was. We could be anywhere, he was so adaptable. But when he came down to certain cultural things, he would not budge. It was very interesting. When there was certain cultural things, this was the way it is, no way. And when for other things, it was so kind of easy to travel with because it was so unassuming and so undemanding and so easy to be with. And he did not put on hair. It was very interesting. Like, in one way in America, and I was translating, people, when they went to see him, for, to meet him, had to bow three times. And this was a bit because in America they're very egalitarian and generally they don't like so much to bow. And I had to say, well, by the way, you know, 
you have to bow to him three times. That's the way it is. You know, otherwise you can't see it. And you say, well, isn't he arrogant? You know, da da da. But actually, because it's part of his precept, it's part of his tradition, it's part of the custom. And the idea is that you don't bow to the person. But actually, in the bowing, there is this pause. There is this movement of, yeah, in a way, I'm trying to have a different encounter with this person. I'm trying to look at things which are meditative, which are spiritual. And that's very much the way he would take it. Because I could be, you know, standing with him in the station in Hamburg at midnight, and he had no problem standing there. He didn't need to go to the VIP section or anything. He was just fine. So it's not that he was arrogant, but that was part of his tradition. We had to have the three bars, so I had to make it happen that way, <laughs> which probably was a little awkward. Or just the way he would encounter the world. He did not know everything. He kind of, sometimes he would, we would have kind of, you know, little discussion, and I would kind of say, okay, I dropped this, because it was factual. And it was kind of, you know, like, one thing he used to do is when he came back from his travel to America or other places, he would describe it all to people when he went back home because they could not travel in those days. And I would sit there and I would cringe because he would say, yes, you know, I was in Boston and I saw the kind of the boat of Christopher Columbus, which actually is not. This is a Mayflower and this is kind of, anyway, it's not Spanish, but, uh, or all kind of things like this. And I kind of, I did, I did not say anything because it did not matter so much. But it was obvious that he was not omniscient. He was not a geographer, he was not an historian, you know, so I think we have to be careful, what is this awakening about? And to finish, I would like just to kind of read, um, uh, again, another quote by Master Tawi, and I'll talk more about Master Tawi because he was really, in a way, a very important figure in the Zen tradition with this question, what is this? And he had a very strong rapport with lay people, and often, they would, uh, lay people would write him letters and then he would reply back. And here, there is this practitioner like you writing a letter to a teacher and that's what the teacher answers. Your letter informs me that your root nature is dim and dull. Possibly what you felt in the last two days. I don't know. And the master goes on to say, the one who can recognize dim and dull is definitely not dim and dull. <laughs> so, that's what I wanted to say today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.